You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Edgeworks Nebula. Schedule 35 is the most trusted and popular microdosing source in North America, making it their goal to destigmatize and re-educate on the science and real-world benefits of psilocybin, as well as making it accessible for everyone. Studies have shown that psilocybin works by creating new neural networks in the brain, which help boost focus, creativity, mood enhancement, and help fight addiction. Our producer had a goal of writing her own scripts. Struggling with the creative process, the mental blocks, the moods, and naturally the fear of failure for years, with Schedule 35's guide on microdosing and following the proper dosing amounts, it is possible to overcome the writer's block and start working from a place of mental clarity. Right now, Schedule 35 is offering 15% off with code STS when you head to schedule35.co. That's 15% off at schedule35.co and use code STS. All customers will need to be manually age-verified first before they are able to purchase. Ages 19 and up in Canada and 21 and up in the U.S. Hey folks, this is Lacey Hannon. Welcome to Settle the Stars. We're glad to have you back. Right now, we're going through some of the biggest sci-fi stories to hit your screens. Our aim is to explore space science through the lens of public presentation. We all know there's a lot of bad fake science out there. CSI, anyone? But where do science, its history, and entertainment intersect? In ancient times, the open seas and uncharted lands provided the perfect backdrop for journeys undergone by mythical heroes such as Homer's Odysseus. With modern technology and simpler means of travel, we now have the world at our fingertips and can easily hop onto a plane or YouTube for a tour of some country on the opposite side of the globe. In a world so interconnected, outer space has become the new wilderness where the journeys of mythical heroes can unfold. That, at least, was the driving idea behind James Gray's 2019 science fiction film, Ad Astra. Inspired by Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness and its cinematic counterpart, Apocalypse Now, not to mention all the stories from Greek mythology that inspired Conrad himself, writer and director James Gray set out to film the tale of a man, astronaut Roy McBride, played by Brad Pitt, who journeys to confront a renegade explorer that has become consumed by madness not in the jungle, but at the far reaches of our solar system. The twist in Gray's tale is that the renegade is none other than Roy's own father, Clifford, played by Tommy Lee Jones. When it comes down to it, the story driving Gray's particular space odyssey actually has very little to do with space. Gray was more interested in exploring the depths to be plumbed within the individual than he was in exploring the depths of space. While Roy's mission is to stop his deranged father from potentially destroying the Earth with experiments in antimatter, 
His personal journey takes precedent over any danger we feel might actually be posed to the Earth. Roy's own journey has to do with facing the man who willingly boarded a shuttle and departed from his life during his teenage years. A man from whom Roy tragically inherited his own cold and closed-off demeanor. The same story could definitely have played out across the divide of continents rather than planets, but for Grey, there was no better metaphor for the gulf between father and son and for the distance Roy feels between himself and the rest of humanity than the wide-open canvas of space. But that doesn't mean Grey wasn't also interested in exploring all the cool ways the setting of space could enhance the story. In fact, he said it was his goal to produce the most realistic science fiction film of all time. He later adjusted that comment, noting that what he should have said was that he had aimed to make the most plausible science fiction film of all time. There's a reason science fiction is known as a speculative art form. Very little of what we predict comes true, Gray said on how he approached designing the world of tomorrow. So knowing that already, knowing that we face a situation where any prediction we make about what the moon will look like 50 or 100 years from now will be wrong. What we tried to do was simply look at the present or look at 50 years ago or 100 years ago and see what has changed. Three things that haven't changed in the last 50 years are the prevalence of fast food places, the fashionability of men's suits, and the use of Sharpie markers. And all three make an appearance in Ad Astra. While the future world of Ad Astra does feel very lived in and very naturally evolved from where we are today, Gray and his production team may have actually drawn a little too heavily from the past and places for the comfort of purists. In his review, Adam Frank, professor of astrophysics at the University of Rochester, criticized the film's art design, saying, Unfortunately, Ad Astra presents a picture that looks decidedly backward. The helmets seem like something from the Mercury program in 1963, and the suits appear to come from the space shuttle era. There is a cool chase sequence on the surface of the moon, but I honestly thought they were using Apollo-era moon buggies complete with gold foil on the wheel rims. Why would the future look like that? But for the less informed viewer, the film succeeds in its natural portrayals of a colonized moon and Mars where the structures and vehicles are as utilitarian as much of the man-made world we live in today. A lot of thought went into how these places would have been colonized from the commercialization of the moon, complete with an Applebee's, dare we propose the slogan, eaten good way outside the neighborhood, to how they based Mars off the McMurdo Research Station in Antarctica as the furthest outpost in our solar system, a place where scientists, freed of the expectation of civilization, can cut loose with wild fashions and wild partying. To further build out the future world of Ad Astra, Gray imagined the moon would be half touristy Vegas in space and half Wild West frontier where factions of opportunists vie for the possession of the abundant helium-3 to be found there. The moon actually is rich with helium-3 due to the solar wind that regularly blasts its surface. While an operation to mine helium-3 on the moon would cost billions, people have speculated that helium-3 could be an incredibly efficient form of energy that might one day be instrumental in helping us make the leap from the moon to Mars. The possibility of a moon overrun with fast food joints and people scrambling for resources might sound outlandish. And there was an official moon treaty signed in 1979 
to prevent any one nation from claiming ownership over the moon and its resources. However, the treaty doesn't exclude private industry from capitalizing on what the moon has to offer. Hmm. Come to think of it, a lunar Applebee's doesn't sound that far-fetched after all. Speaking of space and commercialism, Ad Astra sees a Virgin Atlantic shuttle carry Roy from Earth to the moon, much like the Pan Am shuttle that ferries passengers from Earth to orbit in Stanley Kubrick's 2001. It comes with all the amenities you might expect on a commercial flight, including a pillow and blanket you can order for a very reasonable $125. As was the case in 2001, the idea behind Ad Astra's Virgin Atlantic flight was to show that human behavior doesn't change much with time. Once commercial space travel becomes normalized, passengers will be more than ready to order a pillow and sleep through their flight into space. Of course, the farther out you go, the more heavy-duty the spacecraft must become. Through his research, Gray realized that for longer distances of space travel, the transports would need to be built of military-grade material. For the craft that takes Roy from the moon to Mars and beyond, the Cepheus, the design team referenced the interiors of the International Space Station and based the cockpit on those found in military jets and actual space shuttles. Gray said he wanted every switch to have a purpose, so that if you wanted to land the space shuttle, looking at the cockpit in the movie, you could do it. Just like the spacecraft, the landscapes of the moon and Mars seen in the film were modeled as closely as possible on the real deal. For the scene where Roy's rover is attacked by lunar pirates, sorry, not the fun kind with eye patches and wisecracking parrots, the production blended actual 16mm footage of the moon shot by astronauts who went there with the footage of the chase that was staged in Death Valley, which kind of amazingly makes this scene in Gray's own words the first sequence ever shot on the moon that was shot on location. Cinematographer Hoyte van Hoytema, returning to space five years after lending Christopher Nolan's Interstellar, used an infrared camera when filming in Death Valley to turn the ground a reflective white like the surface of the moon and the California sky the deep black of space. Though Mars is known as the Red Planet and it sure looks red from a distance, you'll notice that the Mars of Ad Astra has a distinctly yellowish hue. This was because photographs taken by the Mars rovers revealed that up-close parts of the planet appear more yellow than red. As they did with the moon, the production team blended actual photography of Mars into the picture, once again in Gray's words making this the first movie to be shot on location on Mars. This certainly helps Ad Astra score high when it comes to accurately portraying space, but there are also some pretty outlandish sequences along the way, and the film, like so many before it, has come under the scrutiny of cinema-going space fanatics. As a mobile gaming company, we take a lot of pride in our game and our customer support. We dive into what our subscribers and gamers are saying. So yeah, we read the comments. Squarespace makes it easier to do that. They offer a completely integrated commenting system and all comments have individual like counts. So companies like ours can always check in on how their games and other content are being received. Squarespace makes it easy for anyone to stay on top of their work and deliver a product they are proud of. Squarespace also has a very fancy members-only area, 
which is a great way to connect with your audience and generate revenue through gated members-only content. You can give customers perks, grow your audience, and get you paid for the work you put into your space on the internet. So check out Squarespace to give your work a little leg up and your audience the perks they deserve. Everyone wins with Squarespace. Head to squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, go to squarespace.com STS and you will save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com STS. Let's take a look at just how scientifically accurate some of Ad Astra's wilder scenes really are. The film begins with stunning views of a towering antenna that extends 80,000 feet up from the Earth. Astronaut mechanics clamber about on the outside of the structure in their suits with the Earth an insane distance below them, bringing to mind a far more extreme version of the iconic photograph of construction workers having lunch on the beam of an unfinished Manhattan skyscraper. When a cosmic wave rocks the antenna, the unthinkable happens and the astronauts, including our protagonist Roy, are sent hurtling toward the Earth from thousands of feet up. It's a heck of a way to start the film, but is such an antenna even possible? While physicists have considered the possibility of a space elevator that begins in orbit and dangles towards the Earth, in the film we see that the antenna is rooted in the ground. Marcus Landgraf, a physicist with the European Space Agency, noted that any structure of that size would be too heavy to exist. It would steadily sink into the Earth and would continue to do so for as long as it stayed standing. Furthermore, the narrowness of the structure combined with its improbable height would inevitably cause it to topple like a tower of Pringles outside the can. As for Roy's freefall from the upper reaches of the Earth's atmosphere, the world record for the highest altitude skydive is currently 135,889 feet. The record was set in 2014 by Google exec Alan Eustace. He used a special balloon to raise himself to even higher than the elevation Roy is seen falling from in the film. To prevent himself from going into a potentially deadly spin, like the one Roy enters, Eustace deployed a drogue chute with a high attachment point when he made his jump to control his alignment in freefall. When U.S. Air Force Colonel Joe Kittinger set his initial record of 102,800 feet in 1960, he went into just such a spin and blacked out. Kittinger was saved by the emergency chute that automatically opened for him at 10,000 feet. While it stretches suspension of disbelief that Roy could maintain consciousness long enough to correct his out-of-control spin and activate his chute, if they had automatically opening backup parachutes in 1960, they'll surely have them on a gig like the one Roy's seen working in in the future. So, as incredible as the scene appears, we can stick Roy's freefall from the space antenna into the plausible category. Once on the moon, a chase ensues between the Space Command rover that's transporting Roy to the launch site for his trip to Mars, and rovers belonging to the aforementioned Lunar Pirates. It's a thrilling sequence with audible gunshots fired from rover to rover. Of course, the first thing that pops into any viewer's head is, is any of this even remotely possible? As for the question of whether a gun can be fired in space, the answer apparently is yes. Yes, they can. While you need oxygen to trigger the combustion that propels the bullet, and there's obviously no oxygen on the moon, guns come with their own oxidizers, making firing a gun in the vacuum of space as simple and as possible as on Earth. 
As for the sounds of the gunshots and impacts heard in the sequence, we know that the barely there atmosphere of the moon does not allow sound to carry. Dr. Nicholas Lee of Stanford's Department of Aeronautics and Astronautics remarked that the person wielding the gun could hear a distorted version of the gunshots traveling through the material of their suit, which explains the muffled bursts we hear when Roy fires back at the pirates. However, other sounds like that of a rover crashing into a canister of helium-3 could not have been heard by our Vantage character, however muffled. So the scene is a blend of science fact and science fabrication. But come on. It's Brad Pitt fighting space pirates. If there's any scene in the movie that can get away with letting the science slide a little, it's this one. There are, however, a couple confusing points in the film regarding where characters have to be in the solar system in order to send or receive a communication. Roy is ordered to go to Mars so he can send a voice message to his father, who's stationed near Neptune, with the goal of bringing him in. It's never explained, however, why Roy needs to go all the way to Mars to do this, when the same message could travel much faster from Earth to Neptune than Roy could from Earth to Mars. Maybe we're meant to believe that the space antenna that's damaged in the film's opening was Earth's most effective way of sending long-distance communications, but that's left to the viewer to assume. The even bigger problem is the fact that Roy's father had to go all the way to Neptune to conduct his research for extraterrestrial life. You might wonder why we would go all the way to Neptune to search for signs of life in the universe when we're already conducting SETI research from Earth. Well, according to the film, the sun's magnetic field interferes with the instruments being used in the search. So they have to go to the boundary of the heliosphere, which is the region of space where the sun's influence reaches. In the film, that's Neptune. But in reality, we know the heliosphere to extend far beyond Neptune. The Voyager 2 space probe discovered that the heliosphere actually extends about 8 billion miles past Neptune. For reference, Neptune is about 2.8 billion miles from Earth. If the sun's magnetic field really was a problem for researchers' instruments, it's doubtful there would be much more to be gained from searching for extraterrestrial life from Neptune than from Earth. It's also not possible, even given the 26 years Roy's father is stationed by Neptune, that he could come to the conclusion that there is no other life in the universe. The universe is an awfully big place to sweep, and until we do find extraterrestrial life, the one thing we can be certain of is our uncertainty. After stowing away aboard the Cepheus and inadvertently getting the crew killed en route, Roy finally comes face to face with his father in orbit of the farthest planet in our solar system. Sorry Pluto, know that for those of us born before the millennium, you will always be a planet in our hearts. Commiserations about Pluto aside, Grey gets the chance to show off a rarely seen planet in cinema, and Neptune in all its blue-ringed glory does look spectacular. Gray mentioned they had to cheat a little in terms of the blue glow they used to light Roy and his father while on their spacewalk. In reality, the scene would have played out in near total darkness. But of course, you have to show the viewer something. In another of the film's more visually impressive sequences, Roy has to push himself from one ship to another, passing through the rings of Neptune along the way, using only a panel he broke off the ship to shield himself from the particles in the rings. While we have never flown a spacecraft through Neptune's rings before, we did fly the space probe Cassini through Saturn's rings on its way to be destroyed inside the gaseous planet once it ran out of fuel. 
As happens with Roy and his whole shield, Cassini was impacted by multiple particles, though they were far smaller than the Hollywood-sized ones Roy deflects. The major difference between Roy and Cassini is that Roy is propelled through Neptune's rings by nothing but his forward momentum. Given the repeated impacts, it's doubtful Roy could have stayed on course. The nuclear blast Roy sets off to propel his ship back home is another matter entirely. While nuclear energy has been considered for use in long-distance space travel, the actual application of this would be a bit more refined than setting off a bomb behind your ship. It's safe to say this moment is one of the film's bigger leaps when it comes to plausibility and a definite case of, don't try this at home, kids. But however fast and loose the film plays with the laws of physics, Ad Astra still delivers a unique and enlightening message about our ambitions for space travel and our place in the cosmos. The film's conclusion that we are indeed alone in the universe, however flawed, came about through a quote of Arthur C. Clarke's that inspired Gray. Two possibilities exist, Clarke said. Either we are alone in the universe, or we are not. Both are equally terrifying. Gray realized he had seen so many science fiction films that affirmed the existence of extraterrestrials, but none that came to the opposite conclusion. So he decided to present a reality where we really are all we've got and to consider where that realization might lead us. In the end, Roy realizes he must let his father go, symbolically and literally into the void of space. But he doesn't return home empty-handed. He returns with a new self-awareness and a new perspective on what matters in life. As Gray points out, Sometimes, the need to look outward is more about trying to avoid looking inward. Garrett Reisman, a former astronaut and one of Ad Astra's technical consultants, made some interesting observations of his own about our expectations versus the more probable realities of our ambitions in exploring other planets. Reisman said, I can tell you having left the Earth that there's no place like this one and how important it is we preserve the unmatched habitability of this planet. A lot of us now are looking at maybe making a sustainable human presence on another planet in our solar system, and specifically the red planet, and thinking about all the wonderful utopia that it might be. And I think that we have to consider at least for a moment, what if we take our human failings along with us? Just as Roy learns to become a better steward of his own life, Ad Astra might be telling us something about just how special our little blue marble really is, and the value of caring for what we have before we go chasing after more. Like they always say, there's no place like home. Settle the Stars is a proud member of the Edgeworks Nebula, a collection of intriguing and informative podcasts from Edgeworks Entertainment. Edgeworks Nebula. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science. Everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.